with the, the parish ministry within the Church of Scotland. Um, he made it his ambition that within his first year, it was quite a small rural charge, he made it his ambition within the first year that he would go around every member listed within his church records. Uh, well on through the process, towards the end of that year, he came across this house, knocked on the door, a lady came to it, and he knew that by the records that she was a member, and, uh, but he couldn't recommend a nicer face. So he, he was invited in, duly, for the cup of tea, and uh, as he sat and he said, uh, so how long have you been in membership? I know she'd been in membership since she was uh, quite a young woman. Her parents were church members, grandparents on both sides of the family, church members before that. Uh, a long historical link with, with this local church. And he said, well, I, I, I've been here about a year, and I, I think this is the first time I've actually ever seen you. I, I, there's a reason that you don't come to church. I've not even seen you out in the community. And she said, well, we don't go to church any longer. Not after what happened to our grandmother. Oh, what happened to your grandmother? Oh, it's the treatment of, uh, of one of your predecessors. Absolutely shocking the way that minister treated my grandmother. We'll never be back in church as a family. Now, my friend was a little bit confused because his immediate predecessor was one of the most humble, gentle, gracious men that you could come across in a, in a long drive, you know what I mean? And he'd also been in that pastoral ministry for over 30 years. So he said, do you mean Reverend, and then he mentioned the name, and she went, oh, no, 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 before that. Isn't it sad? That something that happened 30 or 40 years previously to a lady in the church had created such a tension and conflict that the present generation were still bearing as a grudge that they couldn't go. Um, knowing that this was about a fairly serious conflict that had to be resolved. I, I did a Google search, simply put in the words church conflict, and hundreds, literally hundreds of websites within about a third of a second popped up. Here's one of them. It's uh, Dr. Newberger's ResolveChurchConflict.com website. I do think it's got some very helpful things to say that we don't have time to look at, but there on the front you can see, on the front page it says, What should a church do when there has been an attempt to resolve conflict, but it still remains? And I don't even see that. That's a little egg there, um, with two boxing gloves pushing in on it. And on the one side you see that you, 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 it's a broken egg, and on the other side it's a chick. So that would be the outcome of unresolved or resolved church conflict. He says, and I'll just give you a sample of some of the things that... that Dr. Newbridger goes on to say that, that if you don't resolve conflict within a church, he says it saps the energy of those involved, the focus of ministry is diverted, there's a breakdown in essential communications, the unity of the church is replaced by factions, long-time friends were transformed into antagonists, there was a loss of the church's reputation in the community, members stopped inviting their friends and relatives to services, vision and hope for the future has grown dim, people's faith in the way that they view the church has been negatively impacted. Folks, does any of that sound familiar to you? Unresolved conflict in the church. In other words, a real challenge on God's grace to us. Now, tragic as all church conflict is, some of it arises out of pretty petty and insignificant issues compared with what our reading today deals with. In the opening verses of Acts 15, 
We find Paul and Barnabas recently returned to the sending church in Antioch from a very successful missionary journey into Asia Minor. On that missionary journey, they had faced much opposition as they traveled. But they were also blessed to see the way in which the Holy Spirit had opened doors to the gospel message to be preached to the Jews and the non-Jews. And now here in the church in Antioch, among the new Gentile converts, trouble was brewing and the gospel of grace was facing a severe challenge. So we're going to read God's word uh, just section by section today. We're not going to read through the whole of Acts 15, 1 to 35, but just take it as it comes. So please turn in your Bible to Acts 15, it's page number 1110, 1110 in the Pew Bible. Let's read verse 1 together. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So here we see the whole conflict thing kicking off when some people associated with the church in Judea come down to Antioch and began to teach the Gentile converts. Now we know the converts because Luke addresses them here as brothers. In verse 1, but they say to them that in order to be saved, they have to be circumcised in accordance with the law given to Moses. Now verse 24, a little bit further on, reveals that they didn't actually have the authority of the leaders of the church in the Jerusalem, uh, but they were associated with the church. Uh, you know, again, just for all of us as Christians, whenever you hear a new teaching or a rumor going around that seems to have come from the leadership of any church, please check it out. Uh, what you hear that the leadership have supposed to have said may not actually um, in any way truly represent the views of you know, church management. And, and so here we have a situation where these people are in association with the church, they have some credibility, they come down from Judea to Antioch and start to spread this sort of radical teaching around. Well for them of course it's not radical, they, they, they fundamentally believe it as we'll see. Now unlike us, the believers in Antioch didn't have the benefit from carefully reasoned arguments and teaching about the nature and the doctrine of salvation that are contained in books like Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. These were written much later than, than this incident here. But um, it seems that their understanding of salvation is more likely to have been based on verses like you find in Genesis 17 and 14, where um, it's recorded there that any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh he will be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. And then in Exodus 12, uh, 48 through 49, it says that an alien living among you, that is a, a non-Hebrew uh, living among you, who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover, uh, must have all the males of his household circumcised. And then he may take part as one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to native-born and to the alien living among you. So here are these people from a Jewish background. They're referring to the Jewish scriptures. So in that sense, we can understand why they're given the teaching. The Bible says so. It's got to be like this, is their reasoning. You can't be saved unless you're circumcised. It's in the law. And they're pointing to the Old Testament uh, to prove that. Now certainly their understanding would have been that no Gentile could be saved other than through Israel. 
Israel as God's chosen people were the light to the Gentiles. They would have that in their understanding. But it's most likely that these so-called teachers maintained a a process of proselyte baptism for all non-Jews, for male and female alike, and then circumcision for the men according to the law of Moses. Now as the leaders in the church in Antioch, or part of the leadership, Paul and Barnabas had no option but to challenge such heresy. It's in the real sense, um, their responsibility was to challenge these people. It was really a part and parcel of their divine calling. As under-shepherds of God's good shepherd, leaders in the church are charged to protect the sheep from the potential marauding wolves. Which takes us to verse 2, and my first whole point, the disagreement. So let's read in verse 2 through 5. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told the Gentiles, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Now as I see it, there are two things at stake here. First of all, is the authority of the church's message. Paul and Barnabas, were told, were brought into sharp dispute and debate with these teachers from Judea. In the original language, in verse 2, it kind of conveys the idea of discord and heated disagreement. Where Paul and Barnabas began to question not just what these people were saying, but actually began to question everything about these fellows. Now, as Christians, as church, uh, we need to be trusting. But we need to be careful about how we trust. Just because someone says they're a Christian, or they say they belong to a Christian church, let's, let's, let's hear what they say. Let's check that out. And it's the place of leaders particularly. Sometimes it would appear to be in, in almost an, an, un, an ungracious way. They're not being ungracious, but they've got to challenge teachings that don't set in accordance with, with true Christian orthodoxy. And that's what's happening here. And I think that part of it can be explained. Uh, In times of transition in the church, things are always difficult, and there is an apparent quantum shift from a salvation based in the law of Moses in favor of a covenant of grace made possible through the death of one man. Now that must have been difficult for people who were steeped in in Jewish tradition. Now I say an apparent shift because actually no one has ever earned salvation from being obedient to the law either in the traditions of Judaism or Christianity or anything else besides. Salvation has always been an unmerited free gift of God and is only ever procured by faith. So who are these people? Well, let me speculate a little bit. In Acts 6, uh, it reveals there that many Jewish priests joined the church in Jerusalem. Maybe the teachers were former priests, or maybe they were strongly influenced by them. Verse 5 identifies them with the Pharisees. Uh, Paul would later write to the Galatian churches, 
and actually say these people are not true brothers, but false brothers who wanted to rob both Jewish and Gentile believers of their liberty in Christ. You can check it out in Galatians 2, 1 to 10, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 following. Now, now, whenever there is progress and blessing in the church, the devil is also seeking to destroy the good works of faith. He's very active. Whenever the devil gets active against the church, his chosen weapon, uh, his weapon of choice, is always just to revert to his true nature and to tell lies. It's really the, 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 that's, that's Satan's weapon against us. It's just lies. And uh, the only way that he can overcome us is if we believe the lie. If we refuse to believe his lie, his teaching, in any form or fashion, the enemy has no power and no authority over us. And there has certainly been an incredible outpouring of blessing and much progress in advancing the gospel and seeing the spreading flame that ignited in Jerusalem spread throughout the whole known world, just as Jesus had predicted. And we've got as our verse of the year this year. So maybe that's the identity of the people, closely associated with those who came into the church in Acts 6. What's the problem? What's the real nature of the problem? Well, um, it's very problematic on a number of fronts. But let's start just thinking about the implications for us today. Uh, they would have been enormous had the church introduced literally a doctrine, doctrine of circumcision. Um, particularly half the congregation, it would have been a wide implication for us. Uh, talking to the guys, of course. But there are far wider issues to be addressed than simply a minor surgical procedure. Here's a quote from Warren Wearsby. He says, These people were attempting to mix law and grace and to pour the new wine into the ancient brittle wineskins. They were stitching up the rent veil, reference to the temple, and blocking the new and living way to God that Jesus had opened when he died on the cross. They were rebuilding the wall between Jews and Gentiles that Jesus had torn down on the cross. They were putting the heavy Jewish yoke on Gentile shoulders and asking the church to move out of the sunlight into the shadows. They were saying a Gentile must first become a Jew before he can become a Christian. It is not sufficient for them simply to trust Jesus Christ. They must also obey Moses. Now that's pretty serious stuff. Because these guys were adding to the gospel. And let us not misunderstand the implications of this by either them or anyone else influenced by their message. The Bible is very specific and clear about salvation. Salvation is holy of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ plus Nothing. Plus nothing. It doesn't matter how sincere or how devoted a person may be in following the teaching of so-called Christian organizations like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Unification Church, the Christian Science Church, the Church Universal and Triumphant, the Children of God, etc., etc. They are sincerely wrong. You cannot, on the one hand, hold the Bible, and on the other hand, hold the Book of Mormon, and say they're compatible. Because the Book of Mormon adds to the Book of God, and therefore nullifies the truth in the Bible. Scripture reveals 
the way of salvation. It is holy, God's gift. It's procured by faith, and it is a work of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done. Do you know the people who add something to the gospel are wrong because by adding something to the grace alone gospel, they nullify the aspect of people being saved by faith alone. The human nature wants to do some work to earn salvation. So if as a Jehovah's Witness I do a whole lot of door knocking and I give a whole lot of watchtowers and tracts away, I'm working, I'm earning my salvation. And in the same way, many so-called Christian cults do exactly the same thing. The gospel isn't enough. So you've got to believe this further revelation that was brought to us by a teacher or a divine or a prophet since the day of Jesus Christ. But you know such people rob the cross of Jesus of its saving power. And salvation again becomes something that we can do for ourselves. Albeit through some other um, learned person. There are no works to do in order to be saved. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. There is no further revelation to be read alongside the Holy Bible. God has not sent another prophet or divine being since he himself came in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the truth according to God's word. It's the Christian truth. And anything else that refutes that has to be contested and shown to be the wicked thing that it is. Something that leads people away from salvation and away from God and His grace. Now consider the judgment revealed in God's word against anyone who denies or adds to the finished work of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension to the place of authority of God's right hand in glory. Paul says to the Galatian churches, someone has bewitched you. And this is how he goes on to address the situation of false teachers. In Galatians 1, verses 8 through 9, he says, But even we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you. Let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, and now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. No matter how sincere someone outside the Christian faith who adds to the gospel may be, it's with a serious warning that I have to tell you that the Bible says that damnation is the eternal resting place. You add nothing to the Bible. Salvation is by God's grace and God's grace alone. It also would have affected the authenticity of the church's mission. You see, there's an implication in the wider context of mission here for Paul and Barnabas. They've just returned from establishing several Gentile churches and of course, they would have taught these new converts nothing of what these Jewish teachers were proclaiming regarding circumcision. So the church in Antioch felt that it was wise to discuss the matter with the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. So they commissioned Paul and Barnabas for the task and wisely sent some other believers along as witnesses. These witnesses um, would protect Paul and Barnabas from being accused of distorting the facts. This gathering in Jerusalem is known as the Council of Jerusalem. It was held circa A.D. Um, 48. It's the first of many such gatherings in the early church uh, that were convened uh, to address areas of doctrinal purity in both practice and belief. You might have heard um, quite an eminent bishop on the news yesterday saying it's time for the Church of England, for the Anglican Communion, 
to move away from its homophobic attitudes um, towards uh, the ordination of gay priests and, and, and people living in, in gay relationships within the church and to concentrate on that which is much more important to address the needs of poverty and illness and sickness. Addressing the needs of poverty and sickness and illness are absolutely true, but you cannot write something under the carpet that is fundamentally against God's word and there are wider issues to be addressed there. The church maybe needs to convene again and look at God's word and say, this is what the truth says. And all who want to belong to the truth can establish themselves or re-establish themselves on that ground. Maybe it's time to say, albeit lovingly and gently, very caringly, to those who distort the word of God, you wrong. And there is no place for your teaching in the true church of Jesus. So let me come to verse 6 in the discussion. Uh, let's read just the first uh, through 6 through 11. Firstly, Peter reminded him of God's acceptance of the Gentiles and giving him the Holy Spirit. At verse 6, the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that they are saved, just as they are. No circumcision. If you want to read more about uh, what the apostle is, is talking about here, reread chapters 10 and 11 to see what Peter is talking about. It's Cornelius' vision. It's Peter's vision. It's the, 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 the Pentecost coming to the Gentiles. The God who gives every believer, every true believer, as an earnest, the Holy Spirit that is a deposit in their heart. It's the Holy Spirit in your life that shows that you're a true believer. It's not that you turn up to church on Sunday. It's not that you read your Bible and pray every day. That's not, that's not evidence of you being a true believer. It's whether God resides in you or not, whether by, because of what he's done in justifying your life um, through Jesus Christ on the cross, that he can come and live within your life. That's the earnest. And, and these Gentile people, they received that. No circumcision. So Peter says, Christ, that's the way it appeared to me. Secondly, Paul and Barnabas recount their testimony of God's dealing with the Gentiles through their first missionary journey. In Acts 15 and 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Luke just gives us one sentence here to remind us of all that has taken place in chapters 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas would have no doubt had great joy in sharing with the gathered council in Jerusalem among all that members their missionary experiences and they didn't have a PowerPoint slide or a fuzzy felt board in sight to help them. They just told us as it was. When we went into this town, this is what happened. When we went into that synagogue, that's what happened. When we met this person, whoa, you should have been there. And they were excited about the retelling of what God was doing among the Gentiles. And never a word of a sharp knife or blade or a pair of scissors anywhere in the conversation. It's done by God's grace. And thirdly, James then concludes that the Old Testament prophecy 
was in perfect agreement with these reports from God's people that are always intended to be made up of Jews and Gentiles alike. Let's pick it up in verse 15. When they had finished, James spoke up, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The word of the prophets are in agreement with us, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. These people who meet together to debate this have had God's revealed plan in their old covenant, but this is not the first time that they failed to understand it. As they look more intently, they see that God has always had a plan to call out to himself a people from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. Neither Jesus' birth nor death were afterthoughts in God's mind. Both have been agreed by the Godhead in eternity. As could be seen by the way that Amos' prophecy quoted here agrees with Peter, Paul and Barnabas' testimony. Um, it's interesting that Luke or James doesn't actually say it's a fulfillment of the prophecy. He says, look, God's at work in his world. And the Old Testament prophecies agree with this. It's always been God's plan. It's always been. It's just, it's just that it's happened to have come through at the stage that we're at now in the development of God's plan and purposes. So after the discussion comes the decision in verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and the elders and the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose uh, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers, and they sent them with the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers at Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. A couple of things here just to pick up. We don't have time to go into this at length, but... Do you see the wisdom of the church leaders here? We certainly don't have time to expand on this final section, but just simply note the process involved in solving this conflict. The false leaders are challenged, they're checked in the tracks by the local church leaders. The wider church then gets involved, and the opinion of other trusted and respected leaders is sought. Thirdly, the evidence is presented in a factual, unbiased manner, and everyone has time to debate and to prayerfully discuss it. Fourthly, God's word is the key factor in reaching an inspired way forward. And fifthly, the senior pastor, James at this time is recognized as first among equals in Jerusalem, gives a strong lead. 
ruler of the church then weighs up the matter and responds in agreement. And the principles of holy living for the Gentiles is established and trusted ambassadors are commissioned to take the ruling to the churches. The reputation of Paul and Barnabas remain intent, intact and they are vindicated in the position of leadership authority. Now, any one of us in the pastoral team would love to take these three subjects that are addressed to the Gentile churches and just to open that up for us. To address the issues of idolatry in our modern day and generation. What does that look like? To address the issues um, of, of how to behave properly in the context of the culture that we live in. How to behave properly in regard to sexual behavior. Huge, huge issues that we don't have time to look at here today. But as Rachel was saying to the children, you know, this gospel of grace doesn't mean that it's a gospel of complete liberty. To do whatever we feel like doing. There are rules and guidance for the holy community to observe and to behave in. And uh, we don't have time to look at that. That's for another time. As I've already stressed several times, we cannot do anything to add to our salvation. However, when we are saved by the grace of God, He does something in us that causes us to change our behavior. And in the church, we're not always being good at balancing our teaching um, so that belief and behavior are held together in perfect balance. But here we see that it is. That belief and behavior balance each other. Some people want to say, I can behave in any way I want and claim to be a Christian. Some people want to say, well, if I just behave better, then I'll be a Christian. That's not the way it works, as we've already seen. But when belief and behavior are held in perfect balance, then the conclusion is that God's grace is triumphant. Let's read the final part of our reading for today. Acts 15 and verse 30. The men were sent off and went to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. And the flame continues to spread. Hallelujah. Let's finish. Just let me put up one verse as a biblical warning to us as a church. The writer to the Hebrews warns the church. In Hebrews 12 and 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. Of the aforementioned Christian so-called cults, do you know nearly every one of them has their roots in evangelical Christianity in some form or fashion? But someone was let loose as a prophet, someone wasn't guided as some kind of divinely inspired person, and the truth of God got distorted. And the so-called teachers of these movements are now leading millions of people to a lost eternity because they've missed the grace of God. And even within the Christian church, that which is part of the true church of Jesus Christ, there are many factions and schisms and denominations and church plants that have resulted out of people missing 
the grace of God. And maybe even in the heart of one individual in here today, you're holding a resentment against brothers and sisters in Christ because you're not appropriating and applying the grace of God. See to it. You don't miss God's grace. Lest the root of bitterness that will grow up and cause defilement to many, maybe even children in your family for generations to come. We don't go to church because granny wasn't treated properly. How sad. No justification. No sympathy. Absolutely ridiculous. The way back from that kind of nonsensical behavior. Sorry God, I've been such an idiot. Forgive me for my sin. Let me receive your grace. What a difference the appropriation and application of God's grace makes in the church. It's actually the difference between divine judgment and human error. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word as we